The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, This is my commandment. Love one another as I love you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves, because a slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I have told you everything I have heard from my father. It was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you, love one another. The Gospel of the Lord. What a remarkably appropriate exhortation from the lips of the Lord do we have on this weekend where we prepare to reflect on the heart of Our Lady. And we begin first by reflecting in a very clear way on the heart of Christ and therefore the very heart of Christian life. And Jesus, as he speaks to his disciples, as he often is, is blunt, clear, and direct. And once again, as we often say in other contexts that there aren't ten suggestions but ten commandments, note that the Lord here is not suggesting anything, but this is a very clear, non-negotiable demand that he places upon his church that he places upon his ministers, that he places upon those who follow him, and he insists upon it. This is the commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. We often short-circuit this, and we hear love one another and then rush out to do just that according to our best idea, and then we shake our heads in puzzlement at why we get it wrong. And it's because we've missed the back half of the commandment, which is actually the first part. Before you can love one another, you first have to know my love for you, because that is the love with which you are to love and not some other love. This is difficult for us if we're really honest with ourselves because we always believe we know best. We trust our own intentions. We trust our own impressions. We trust our own judgment. And the Lord is saying, but that's not where we start. We start someplace else, someplace much more fundamental. But the impulse is clear. Something must go out of us, and we must do something. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he moves to even explain what this love is. Immediately he moves to what is the very greatest of loves? Because now all of a sudden what he's saying is, I don't want you to love one another with a reluctant love with a grudging love, with a minimal love, or even with second, third, or fourth best love, but rather aspire to something greater because my love for you is great. Note how beautifully curious this is. On the one hand, we are taught to be humble in our aspirations, and yet, on the very next hand, the Lord says, but in this aspire to be great. Love with my love and not something less. What a remarkable moment this is. 
this insistence that the love that must express itself from a Christian heart is no small thing, but is in fact the greatest of things. And it is defined by the ability to lay down one's life, not in pursuit of his own goals. Much of the tragedy in our world is because of that. To lay down one's life, not even for one's own good, but rather one's good is found in the laying down of one's life for the benefit of another. And it is the Lord who says this, who reminds us that he does not ask his disciples, he does not ask his church to do a single thing that he will not first do himself because he is that one who has come to lay down his life for us. In fact, this teaching happens on the night of the Great Supper, by which he gives us that marvelous sacrament of his body and blood. He who gives his life, who lays down his life, says, this then must shape your living. This must be the mark of your living. As I love so must you love. And he continues that understanding this is vital because it's the difference between a slave and a friend. A slave simply obeys without understanding. A slave obeys without knowing and therefore is limited in his faithfulness. A friend, on the other hand, understands the heart of his friend. A friend knows why. A friend knows what. A friend knows how. Note, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And what is it that he commands? Receive my love and love with that love. In other words, know my heart. Such a simple thing and yet so difficult for us to master. In fact, it's, it's what lurks behind that marvelous moment at the convent in France when our Lord appeared to St. Margaret Mary while she was at prayer before the great sacrament. And as he comes, he shows his heart to her with the statement, behold this heart. Take a good look. See it clearly. See it really behold the heart that has so loved men. Look upon my love. Know my love. Know my heart. Since Jesus said this to the present day over these many centuries, this is the thing where, with, despite our best efforts, we often fall short in all the time. We don't take sufficient time to behold that heart, to know that heart, to know that love. This is not merely reading about it. This is tasting it, receiving it, experiencing it. This is why, in no small measure, the greatness of sacred heart devotion, the devotion of the love of Christ, is fundamentally and thoroughly Eucharistic. It is a call to meet him in the sacrament, to know him in the sacrament, to receive and linger in the experience of his love, so that rising from that moment, one might go forth to live that love, to share that love, and to be that love. What a remarkably beautiful moment this is. And it's here that the Lord says, and understand, I chose you. Meaning I desired you. I looked upon you and wanted you to receive my love. It's not you who first came to me, but my love has called for you sought you out, brought you to me. And because my love has brought you to me, 
Stand in that love and receive it. And let that unite you to me. And then when you go, your actions and your living will bear a fruit that does not pass away. It will linger beyond the moment of your speaking, beyond the moment of your acting, beyond the moment of your praying. On the other side of the amen, on the other side of the kind word, there will be something that lingers beyond merely earthly generosity because it will be touched with my goodness and my fullness. What a remarkably beautiful thing this is. And note how he follows it up. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Note Again, this cuts against the grain of that unfortunate Christian tendency to simply say, in Jesus' name, amen, as if somehow that's a magic formula that grants our prayers. Asking in his name implies standing in his love. The second commandment of the Decalogue, thou shalt not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain, is not a prohibition on bad language, first and foremost. We've reduced it to that. What it really means is thou shalt not apply the name of God to a cause that is not his. Oh, and we do that all the time. We do that all the time when we act outside of his love. We do that all, all the time when we act out of love of self or hatred for our brother. But when we live in his love and act in his love and love with the love that he has given us, we are acting in his name, speaking in his name. And when we pray, we will indeed pray in his name. And that prayer indeed will be heard. Asking in the name of the Lord is not merely a matter of attaching the name Jesus to what we say. It is first a matter of standing in the fullness of his love. How wonderful we can reflect on this at Mass, when in just a couple minutes, he who gives us this wondrous teaching gives us himself. And we stretch out our hands or open our mouths and we receive and take that love which is his very self into ourselves. And our prayer, our prayer, united with that love, is indeed powerful, he says. It's powerful because the love that lives within us is a great thing, a mighty thing, in fact, the very greatest of things. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Saint Dominic. Saint Francis. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As you know, or at least I believe you know, the object of our reflections over this weekend is devotion to the Immaculate Heart of our Blessed Lady. And that's an interesting and very loaded phrase with quite a history to it. Most people in our present age hearing those words have immediate and automatic associations with Our Lady of Fatima. That is absolutely understandable, but in its own way, it's a bit misleading. Because devotion to the Immaculate Heart is older than the event at Fatima. And so to truly understand it, we do have to go back a little bit further into the history of the church. So much of what we will be speaking about over these coming days will refer to Fatima and the devotion that has come out of it. But we want to begin first by framing 
the broader context in which we're speaking about this because the spirituality around the heart of Mary is a rich and ancient thing. And the first is we want to begin by just clarifying some of our terminology. You know, it's often the case in any group, whether it's a group of professionals, whether it's a family, whether it's in faith-based settings where we end up using certain words over time so frequently that we assume that everybody knows what we mean when we use them. And that's often not the case. In fact, in a religious setting, there are words that we use very, very commonly and very, very frequently that we ourselves, if we honestly admit, don't quite know what they mean. Now, I'm not going to do this, but for example, if I pointed to one of you and said, explain to me what the word holy means, I'm willing to bet there's going to be a pregnant pause on the other end of that request. It's not that we know nothing about the word, but it's fairly slippery in its meaning, isn't it? We use it frequently, and yet we rarely, if ever, reflect on what its real meaning is. So when we say something like devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady, let's make sure we are talking about the same thing. So we'll begin with the very first word, devotion, which is a word that is badly misunderstood in our contemporary religious climate. Quite frequently, when we use the word devotion, we have automatic, again, automatic associations are not bad things, but they're often misleading things. And so we'll speak about my devotion to St. Padre Pio, my devotion to the Divine Mercy Chaplet, my devotion to the Miraculous Medal, my devotion to the St. Jude Novena. This is not what we are talking about. And I can't stress that strongly enough. We are not speaking about things like that when we use the word in the context of this retreat. The word devotion in the Catholic tradition is a weighty and significant word. And it doesn't refer first and foremost to particular prayers or particular practices, however beautiful they may be. And to get at that and to understand what we're really speaking about, a simple question. Should a husband be devoted to his wife? You gotta pause there. Should a wife be devoted to her husband? Yes. Should children be devoted to their parents? Should parents be devoted to their children? Should a priest be devoted to his people? That's what we're talking about. Devotedness. Devotion is first and foremost an interesting expression in light of our topic for the week, a matter of the heart literally an affair of the heart. It is something, it is a personal disposition of being personally devoted to someone or something. This is the primary understanding of the word devotion in a Catholic spiritual context. In fact, it was the word for spirituality, for example, in 17th century France and 18th century France when St. Louis de Montfort was writing. So devotion to Mary was about a spirituality, a way of being personally devoted to our Blessed Lady. So now as we reframe the title, Devotion to the Immaculate Heart, we are speaking about, quite literally, one heart, mine or yours, or many hearts, ours altogether, being devoted to another heart. How important that is and how valuable that is because there are many forms of false devotion, false devotedness in the world around us. We give ourselves to causes, 
We give ourselves to all kinds of things. We are devoted to our careers, to our pastimes. One of the great temptations in the church is I can become so devoted to my ministry that I actually pull, find myself pulling away from the Lord who has given it to me in the first place. And so devotion then has the other element of I am investing myself, giving myself in a certain direction. I cannot be devoted to you without investing myself in some way in a relationship with you. And so when we speak then of devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, it is not simply saying, I really like Our Lady's heart. It is speaking about the way I am personally investing myself in a relationship this way. And now let's turn to the other words in this statement. Devotion to the Immaculate Heart, and now let's turn to this word, heart, the heart of Mary, the heart of Our Lady, because there is much here to unpack and explore. We're going to do that first by framing a certain context. Some 250 years before Our Lady appeared at Fatima, and spoke about devotion to her heart to the shepherd children. St. John Eudes in France composed a series of liturgies in honor of what he termed the sacred heart of Mary. This is before Margaret Mary, St. Margaret Mary had her apparitions of the sacred heart of Jesus. And so there's a vital and extant devotion, a spirituality around the ideas of the hearts of our Lord and the heart of Our Lady that is very, very old and very, very vital. And out of these broader associations with the heart of Mary, I mean, imagine that, a mass composed in honor of the heart of Our Lady. Several liturgies composed in honor of the heart of Our Lady. Hundreds of years before Our Lady appeared at Fatima. And within this context, there is also, out of these devotions, a sense that first Saturdays are important. Well before there was ever a mention in 1917 of first Saturdays. And this is an outgrowth of the ancient devotion in the church of dedicating Saturday to Our Lady. And recognizing that not everybody can focus on all the Saturdays, a beautiful tendency came to say, let's target the first Saturday of every month. So that at the head of every month, there is a turning to Our Lady in affection for her heart and her love. And so the original form of first Saturday devotion was 12 first Saturdays, like the 12 stars in Our Lady's crown. So that over the course of a year, our affection for Our Lady would be something like a crown of honor that was offered to her. But where does all of this come from? And why would it focus on her heart? What an interesting series of questions. The origin of devotion to the heart of Our Lady, which understands as well the heart of Our Lady in three levels. Her physical heart, the heart that beat within her body, the heart that expresses her vitality and her living. Her interior heart, the heart of her spirit, her thinking, her will. And then her inmost heart, that mysterious level at the greatest depth of the person where there is a truly intimate unity with the heart of the Lord himself. When we use the word heart, we're going to be speaking on those various levels, each one of them personal in its own way. And devotion to the heart of Our Lady has a very ancient source, and it's biblical. 
The original font of devotion to Our Lady comes from a very early incident in the life of our Lord. Forty days after he's born, he is taken to the temple and presented there. And as he is presented in the temple, elderly Simeon comes, recognizing in him the face of the one that has been promised to bring salvation. He takes the Lord into his arms. He praises God and he turns to Our Lady and says, this child will be a sign of contradiction for the rise and the fall of many. And he looks at her and says, and you yourself, your heart shall be pierced by a sword so that the thoughts of many will be laid bare. This mention of the heart of Our Lady captured the Christian imagination. The image of a sword thrusting through her heart because of the suffering of her son arrested the attention of the faithful. But it arrested the attention of the faithful in a very deep and profound way because they understood this is not simply Simeon saying to Mary, your son is going to suffer, and because you're going to be witnessing it and you're his mother, you're going to suffer too. That is not what he is saying. That is natural. That is understandable. We all know how that works. But this is not merely a statement that because you're his mother and you love him, his woundedness will affect you. Rather, what Simeon says is there's a reason why your heart will be wounded. There is a reason why a sword will thrust through you. And let's just linger with that violent image for a minute. A sword will run through your heart. That's not a gentle image, is it? What happens when a sword runs through our heart? We die. Note the statement. You will be pierced through your life as a martyr. So that. The so that is the engine of the original devotion to the heart of Mary. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be laid bare. You will be pierced because other hearts are closed. And the piercing of your heart is at the service of the opening of those hearts. It is not simply you will suffer because your son suffers, but rather your suffering is related to what he's doing. If he is giving his life to win mercy and salvation for us on the cross, the trouble is the hard-hearted, closed-hearted world which he has come to save all too readily closes itself off from that salvation. And so the tears you shed will fall like water to soften the stones on the, of those hearts. And the piercing of your heart is at the service of the prying open of the stubborn, closed heart of man. What a remarkable, remarkable statement. There is something about her heart and what it endures, which is at the service of the opening of our hearts to the fullness of life and salvation that her son wins for us on the cross. And if we reflect on this for a moment, we can see readily why this is so powerful. One of the earliest forms of devotion to Our Lady is devotion to Our Lady of Sorrows, the mother with the visible heart thrust through by a sword. And why? Because devotion to the sorrows of Our Lady is always at the service of opening us to appreciate the passion of her son. When we see the tears that the mother sheds, 
when we see how greatly she is affected and how deeply she is wounded, we who fail to appreciate what is happening with her son suddenly understand. As we engage the woundedness of her heart, our hearts become open to see, understand, and appreciate the magnitude of what her son does for us. How absolutely beautiful and how absolutely wonderful that is. And so first and foremost, she is pierced deeply through the very center of who she is. And that is at the service of our being opened to the mercy of Christ. But now related to that, and still looking at the early life of our Lord, the second aspect of devotion to the heart of Mary is likewise present. And this is the second aspect of devotion to the heart of Mary that is very early in the history of the church. And we see it for the first time with the visit of the shepherds on the morning of the nativity. And the shepherds who are called by the angel arrive. They find the child with his mother. They bow low before him. They honor him and they leave rejoicing, recounting to Mary all that the angel had told them. And as they leave, we hear for the first but not only time in the Gospels that Our Lady treasured all these things in her heart. And so now is the idea that the heart of Mary is a treasury, a repository, within which are held all of those things that relate to her son. Think about that for a moment. Because how many of us have had the experience, for example, we're at Mass and the gospel is proclaimed, and by the time we sit down at the end of the reading, we've already forgotten what it was. How many times have we received Holy Communion and become distracted before we got back to our place and so lost our sense of the presence of the Lord? And so to understand this now element of devotion to the heart of Mary... We have to understand our own distractedness, the fragility of our own ability to focus. The fact that even the best of things are so rudely and quickly snatched out of our grasp and possession. And the fact that we often treasure the wrong things in our hearts. Because if we're honest, we've all had those moments of treasuring certain resentments in our hearts. We don't like that they're there, and yet they become this bitter possession of ours that we value in some strange way. We treasure our fears. We treasure our ambition. We treasure our pride. We treasure many things, and we preoccupy ourselves with these things. And so to hear that Our Lady treasured all of these things about our Lord in her heart, what else does scripture say? Where your treasure is, there you shall find your heart. And so in a sense, it's not simply that she treasured in her heart the things of our Lord, but her heart found its home within the things of the Lord, within the life of her son. Her heart abides. It is not simply filled with the goodness of Christ. It lives within the goodness of Christ. Where your treasure is, therein lies your heart. And so this is the heart that does not forget. This is the heart that does not misplace. This is the heart that is always attentive to Christ. The treasury of grace. That great sea of goodness filled with the blessing of Christ. She is that one who is preoccupied with him that one who never ceases attending to him, that one who values nothing over him. And so note what we've just said about this element of Our Lady. And note how in speaking about the heart, we are really speaking about the woman. And the heart becomes the shorthand for the full person. 
but this heart, the center of her being. What a powerful image this is. And what happened in the church a couple hundred years after the birth of Christ was a deepening and a bringing together of these different strains of reflecting on the heart of Our Lady. And St. Augustine gives it beautiful articulation, which is later completed by the church afterwards. And St. Augustine reflecting on this, this heart that treasures all about Christ, he understood it as the listening heart, the attentive heart, the heart that when Gabriel visits, finds that she is already listening, already waiting for heaven to speak. And Augustine, reflecting on this, says, Our Lady conceived the word in her heart before she conceived him in her womb. What a beautiful statement. The attentiveness of Our Lady is open and, in a sense, conceives and anticipates the Savior before the Savior arrives physically within her. And reflecting on this statement by St. Augustine, later in the church, and it's given particularly beautiful articulation by St. John Eudes, is this. There's a backside to that statement. It's not simply that she conceived him in her heart before she did in her womb. It's this. On the morning of the nativity, Jesus left her womb, but he never left her heart. What a beautiful statement that is. She who conceived him in her heart never had him outside of her heart afterwards. Her heart is a permanent abode, a permanent resting place for the Lord. He is abroad in the world and yet always in her heart. What a remarkably powerful statement that is. And so when we speak about the heart of Our Lady in its fullness, this is what we're speaking about this heart that always has Christ within, this heart which is not simply a treasury of his graces, not simply a catalog of the details of his teaching or the events of his miracles, but a place where he always is pleased to dwell. This is why in parts of the world the privileged term is the sacred heart of Mary because it is the abode, the dwelling of the heart of Christ. And now, if we linger with that a moment, there's this wondrous sense of the union, the unity between the heart of Jesus and the heart of Mary. But it's not simply two hearts standing side by side but rather one heart living and reigning inside the other. Because within the heart of Our Lady lives and reigns the heart of the Lord. And hers is the heart that is the first and the one to most fully beat in time with the beating of the heart of Christ. To love in union with the loving of Christ. To adore the presence of Christ. Hers is the first heart to know his name and to honor it. Hers is the heart that is the first to pray to him, the first to call out to him, the first on this earth to love him. How absolutely wondrous this is. And having begun to do these things, it never ceases to do them. And so she treasures all of these things of her son because she treasures him. And she holds him and enthrones him in her heart. And it's reflecting on these ideas 
that a whole marvelous cluster of biblical images runs through the spiritual writings then of the unfolding centuries. This heart of Our Lady is like the temple. This heart of Our Lady is like the Ark of the Covenant. This heart of Our Lady is like that tent mentioned in the Psalms that the Lord places at the end of the sky for the sun to emerge from. And what is the end of the sky? The place where heaven meets earth. And this beautiful sense of Our Lady being that place where heaven and earth meet. And the Lord comes forth in his brightness to save and warm the world. That the heart of Our Lady is a furnace with the fire of love for God within it. And where the fiery love of God itself is found and present. And because of that, it is like the burning bush that Moses saw. A flame always on fire and yet never consumed, never destroyed. Mysteriously, always bright, vivid, powerful, and vibrant. And in one of the most curious and yet beautiful images that one finds in Catholic history, speaking of the heart of Mary, is compared to the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel into which the three young men are bound and thrown. Because in that furnace, heaven stands with them. They are freed from their bonds. And in the heat of that furnace, their magnificent song of praise rises to heaven from the flames. And there's an image of the love of Our Lady is like that. Flames that do not burn but purify. And that within this heart, within the fire of that heart, one's life and spirit and voice are freed to lift themselves in joyful celebration of the good things that God has done. Because the heart of Our Lady is also compared to the harp of King David. And why? Because from her heart emerges the great canticle, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What an absolutely exquisite set of images, no? And powerful and dramatic. But when we speak then of devotion to the heart of Our Lady, this is what we're speaking of. When the church mentions the heart of Mary, it implies all of these things. Oh, and more. We could probably fill the weekend naming them all. And that would be a wonderful exercise for a future retreat, but not this one. Um, but as we, as we consider that then, we come to that wondrous word in the middle, immaculate the immaculate heart of Our Lady. And immaculate, spotless, pure, sinless. An expression which has a direct and distinct connection to the miraculous conception of Our Lady, her sinlessness. This heart which is immaculate, and why is it immaculate? Because the Lord of all creation will dwell there. Immaculate and therefore worthy. Immaculate and therefore prepared. This heart is the place that the Lord has prepared for himself. Wisdom has built herself a house. This is the house that wisdom has prepared for himself. This is the abode that the Lord has set aside. Immaculate, and therefore, no shadow of selfishness is present. Immaculate, and therefore, no shadow of deceit is present. Immaculate, and therefore, no taint of anger is present. Immaculate, and therefore, guilt-free. 
Immaculate does not mean empty. Okay? Now, when we do that list of this isn't there, this isn't there, this isn't there, this isn't there, we often leave ourselves with the image of a spotlessly clean but empty room. That is not what immaculate means. Immaculate means there is nothing of no within it. But it is filled with yes. Immaculate means that there is nothing of faithlessness in it. Oh, but it is filled with faithfulness. Immaculate means there is no taint of hatred within it. Oh, but it is filled with love. Immaculate means there is no hint of indifference about it. Oh, but it is completely responsive. And again, it's important that we recognize that. These words often give us these static and, as I said, antiseptic images, which are not bad, but they don't go far enough. And no, the, it is the fully adorned temple of the Lord. It is the regal throne room where he will abide. It is the garden of delight where the new Adam will take his rest. It is all of these things, immaculate. Perfectly ordered, perfectly prepared, set in order not by her hand, but by his. And because immaculate, it belongs to him. It is his. What a beautiful series of images then. Devotion to the immaculate heart of Mary. Devotion to the sacred heart of Mary. And as we now say these things, and recognizing just how rich a reality we are engaging, we come back full circle to where we began when I ruled out all of those things and said that's not what devotion means. Let's come back to that now. Let's come back to that. Because the simple fact of the matter is it is absolutely impossible for me to be devoted to you without some way of showing it. Devotion is never merely a purely interior reality. That's a feeling. That's all that is. And feelings are insufficient in Christian life. In fact, most devotedness and the best devotedness often runs counter to our feelings. You know, this is why men and women, when they get married make that odd promise of, I will be with you, honor you, and love you in good times. That's the easy part. And in bad times, that's the difficult part. When it costs me and I don't feel like it, I'll be there. And so devotedness, devotion requires more than mere feeling. It has to express itself in some way. And so that's what these... Other things we mentioned beforehand are the miraculous medal, the scapular, the rosary, devotion to particular saints. Their ways, our devotedness is seeking to come to concrete expression. And so when we speak then about devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, we are speaking first about a personal relationship, and then second, we are speaking about how that relationship comes to expression in our lives. And the expression is important because when we begin to express our friendship to one another, when we invest time and attention in one another, we have to learn how to do it properly. And by doing those things, we actually begin to deepen and develop that internal devotedness. And so practices have a double aspect. They help us first root the disposition within us, and over time, as they become natural, they become expressive 
of that disposition within us. And this is true in our regular relationships as well. You know, the dictum being love seeks to love rightly. There are many ways of having affection for another person, but that's not the same thing as loving the person correctly, of relating to the person correctly. And so again, when we speak of devotion to the heart of Mary, we are always going to be speaking first of this wonderful reality that we are turning toward. But then secondly, we need to begin addressing and by what practices do we grow in this devotedness and come to express it in a truly authentic way. And so note now, turning back to, again, how we began by referring to the event at Fatima, one of the things that came out of the engagement with the apparitions and the messages of Our Lady were a whole cluster of practices associated with engaging the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady. Again, these are not bad things at all. They're very, very good things. But to really understand them, to live them, to respond to them, it's important to be able to situate them within the proper framework of the devotion that the church has historically had to the heart of Our Lady, because then we can see how they build on that and how they enrich that. The first thing, however, is this. You can't be truly devoted to what you do not know. And so the first and necessary practice of devotion to the heart, to the immaculate heart of Mary, is to come to know that heart. And that can't be done if we spend no time thinking about it. That cannot be done if we spend no time considering and responding to it. That is one of the reasons why the church has this rich number of different ways of engaging the heart of Mary. The heart of Mary is like the furnace. The heart of Mary is like the burning bush. The heart of Our Lady is like the harp of King David. The heart of Our Lady is a treasury. The heart of Our Lady is a temple. The heart of Our Lady is that heart within which the sacred heart of Christ is always beating. Notice how each of those statements says something wonderful that one can sit with, one can puzzle over, one can consider. And that's important because the more we come to a sense of her heart, the more also we will come to know the woman, the more also we will come to know Our Lady. And the more we know the greatness of her heart, the more we will esteem it, the more we will recognize it is worthy of our attention, that the heart is worthy of our time, that the heart is worthy of honor. In much the same way when Christ appeared to St. Margaret Mary and he showed her his heart and he said simply, behold, look at it, know this heart, see this heart, Witness this heart. You know, before he asks for anything else, it was that simple behold, come to know. And the interesting thing is, you've all seen statues of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus, right? You know, there's something really marvelous about them, which we often overlook, but children will often see immediately. You know, when you bring, a, you bring like a seven-year-old child to a, an image of the Sacred Heart or the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady for the first time, they've never seen it before, you'll often get the reaction as puzzlement. They look and they say, his heart's on the outside. You know, and on the one hand, that sounds painfully obvious, but we miss that fact. We miss that fact. The heart's in the wrong place on some level. It's outside of the body. It's not where I think it should be. Well, you know, 
that's just not an odd detail from the tradition that is saying something. Because it's speaking about a fundamental movement that my heart goes out to you. It's the outward movement of the heart. It is on the way toward you. The Lord doesn't say that to St. Margaret Mary because his heart is on display. As if it's behind glass in a museum and you can come and look at it whenever you want. It is, see the love that is moving to you. See the love that reaches to you. Feel the heat of it. It's drawn near to you. And that image then of being devoted to the heart is knowing how the heart draws near. Knowing how the heart draws near to us. Because in many ways, the bright and burning full furnace of the heart of Christ is overwhelming to us. But that gentler heat, filled with the love of Christ, that is the heart of Our Ladies, when that draws near, we stand more easily. We stand more peacefully. We are not so overwhelmed. The twinning of the devotion to the two hearts is exactly that. Before I can hear the thunder of the beating of the heart of Christ, it helps to hear the way that beating is echoed in the heart of Mary. Before I can feel the full fire of the heart of Christ, it helps to be warmed by that gentler heat, which is still his, that comes to me through the heart of Our Lady. What a beautiful, beautiful relationship this really is. The fact that when we speak of the heart of Mary, we speak on the one hand of the physical heart of the woman. We speak on the other hand of the heart of her will and her freedom and her dispositions. But then we also speak of that great heart of her son, which beats within her living. And that reminds us, given a share in the life of Jesus in our baptism, that heart of Jesus longs to beat inside of us too. What a beautiful, beautiful series of relationships this is. In the event at Fatima, there are three aspects of devotion to the Immaculate Heart that are very important. And they are all expressed earlier in the history of the church, which is really wonderful. So again, what we see is not something new in the sense it's a thing that never existed before. But rather what happens at Fatima as Our Lady visits the shepherd children is that she gathers up all of the good of the church's devotion to her heart, and she adds something to it. She gives it a direction, a thrust, a sharpness it did not have before. But it's the same devotion, simply amplified. And these will be the themes of the next three talks, okay? Pretty convenient that way. There are three aspects and we have three more talks remaining. And these are, again, all very familiar words. Adoration, reparation, consecration. So as we move through the weekend, these are the three fundamental practices associated with devotion to the heart of Our Lady upon which we will focus. They are adoration, reparation, and consecration. And to give you a little preview of what will happen at some point tomorrow, because I spent the afternoon translating it out of French, I only discovered it just last night. Some 250 years before Our Lady appeared at Fatima, St. John Eudes composed a prayer he called an honorable atonement, an act of reparation, to the Sacred Heart of Mary. 
And it has within it all of the notes of reparation that are later sounded at Fatima. And, and so again, just so as, as, we, as we go through these things to see how on the one hand they're new, and yet on the other hand, they're old. And it's the newness within the old that makes them so absolutely wondrous and so very, very powerful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.